Good morning. My name is Jesse. I'm a pastor here in Double Grace. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're in the midst of a series, Grace for the Exile. And this morning we're looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Last month's New Yorker published an article entitled, Why We Need to Talk About Marriage. Why We Need to Talk About Marriage. In the teaser, it said, It's an institution that informs the tax code and the disposition of wealth. What could it be at its best? It's an excellent question. What could marriage be at its best? What is it meant to be? A British scholar, Deborah Baum, remarks that marriage is a formal relation that could arguably lay claim to being the world's most enduring and universal relationship. Most enduring and universal. Have you considered the weight of that? The historicity of marriage. Why is that? Why did the 16th and 17th century explorers the 18th and 19th century colonialists, and then the 20th century anthropologists, they, they found marriage everywhere across the globe. Historians, marriage in every society. It seems like marriage is basic to our humanity. And evolutionary theory can't really account for this remarkable consistency of monogamous heterosexual marriage. Is there a ring in my voice? I feel very ringy. What do I need to do? Because fix it? Great, great. So Christians believe that, that marriage is not just a union of convenience. We don't just make it up. It's not an evolutionary paradigm construction. But we actually believe that marriage originated in the mind of God. How else could this very strange phenomenon called marriage, this, this woman and man, this the two becoming one. How else could it be unless God dreamed it up? And so if we're going to understand what marriage is, if we're going to talk about marriage, as the New Yorker invites us to, we need to consider it from its divine institution. So let's look at God's word today. This is First Peter chapter 3, verse 1. You can look on in your bulletins. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come to you and we ask your grace upon this word. 
Thank you that you speak to us, that you love to speak to us, that you want us to, to know you, and that you give us this word about marriage. Lord, would we see the beauty and grace that you've given us in this, in Christ's name, amen. Before I get to our first point, a premise about God in scripture, our God, this is we confess this morning, is gracious and merciful, kind and gentle. Jesus calls his yoke easy and light, not burdensome. And actually his word lays out that burdenless way. This is a way of life, way of freedom. So if you can imagine an Olympian runner who's running a race with rain galoshes, baggy jeans on, a heavy ski coat, and a military backpack. Can you imagine all that? That's not what scripture does. What scripture does is takes the baggage off and it gives us the proper equipment so we can run free, unhindered. That's what scripture is. And so when we come to scripture, even a passage like this that I know is hard for many of us to read, that is nevertheless true. I believe that this passage is freeing and gracious and merciful. This is God's freeing to us. We come, I know from, from many responses to this passage, some, some of you might say, see, the Bible really is oppressive. I knew it. I knew it. Some use it like ammo to judge others' marriage or to judge their spouse, to prove your own righteousness. Others fear for how this passage could be used to abuse. Right? And now out of the gate, let me say that if you have been abused or if you're close to anyone who has been abused, that this the Bible, in no uncertain terms, condemns abuse. And in fact, Harvard's reserves the harshest judgment for abuse. The abuse of power is something that God calls out time and time again. So if, there, there will, you, you can use this passage to, to, to justify your abuse, but it is not what the passage intends. And there is a steep judgment for that. But for our text today, let me say, don't be hasty, okay? In the words of Indigo Montoya, I do not think this means what you think it means, okay? I want you to have a little bit of openness of what this passage might say. So, let's, uh, one more preface, and then we'll jump in. Hey, you single people, don't tune out. Don't tune out. All of God's word is for everyone, Okay, someday you might marry, you, you don't know. Um, second of all, your, your married friends need your advice. You know, in the Christian community, it is not our experience that gives us the credentials to speak into people's lives. It's the Word of God. It's our love for them. And so we need to build a community here at IGC where married people are friends of single people, and they need each other. There are certain idols that married people have, like kids, family, and there are certain idols that, that single and childless couples have, like free time, tons of free time, right? And 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 I know a lot of you are using your free time uh, very, very wisely, but we need friends. What I'm saying is that we need each other, single people. And married people, these are divine vocations. We need each other. So don't tune out, single people. And finally, 
in <laughs> marriage is actually about something else. Marriage is actually about it's it's a way of speaking about the gospel. It's a way of speaking about our salvation. So this applies to everyone. So don't tune out. So our sermon thesis this morning is that marriage must be converted to Christ to winsomely reveal our true spouse. I'm going to say it again. Marriage must be converted to Christ to winsomely reveal our true spouse. We're going to first look at the subversion of marriage and then the conversion of marriage. Subversion and conversion. So first, subversion. Peter subverts Greco-Roman marriage. You need to you need to know this. I'm going to lay out the context and then explain how he does this. So this is not just like marriage advice in general. First Peter three is not a manual for how to do marriage. He's concerned for a specific issue. Look at verse one. Look at verse one. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. What happens when a wife comes to faith in Christ, but not her husband? Now, modern people, we don't really see that as problematic, right? You just kind of do life. Everyone can believe what they want. But in the Greco-Roman culture, which is a shame, honor, shame culture, the pater familias, right, the head of the household, they were the ones who determined for the family what the, what the religion was for everyone. They had far more power. And Roman culture put a premium on well-ordered families, all worshiping the state gods as the building block of the state. If the state started to decline, it's because families weren't doing their duty. And so as biblical scholar Karen Jobes explains, a wife's conversion to Christianity had the potential to shame her husband. The husband could be disqualified for certain social or political offices. And these wives' faith in Christ immediately put them at odds with their husbands. These women needed protection and pastoral counsel. What were they to do? It would be like if a, a Muslim wife in Saudi Arabia, right, came to Christ while her husband did not. What does she do? How does she navigate and negotiate her obligation to her husband and faith? And Karen Job says, in a masterful move, Peter both upholds and subverts the social order. He upholds the social order by, by calling wives to submit to their husband, which gives them much needed cover. But then he subverts the social order in three important ways. First, he relegates the husband's authority. Now, a wife's primary, uh, primary loyalty in this passage is not to her husband or his religion, but to the Lord Jesus. Right? He grants these women a religious freedom that is unprecedented. And this is what Jesus said, right? Jesus himself says in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, or husband and wife, or children, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What Peter holds here is your primary loyalty as a Christian is not to your family, but to Christ alone. Second of all, he affirms the wife's moral agency. The New Testament has several of these sections. They're called household codes, 
where, where, where the apostles will go through each kind of category of the household and give them instruction. Now that's based on a, a long tradition in Greek philosophy. They're using a much, a much used trope. But in the Greek, Plato has a household code. But in the Greek philosophy tradition, you never actually addressed women, wives, or slaves. Why? Because they, you didn't need to. They had no agency of their own. You told the house, the, the power familius, the head, what they needed to do. The message was clear. You just needed to address the head of the household. A wise personhood was mediated by the husband. But here, Peter radically addresses both slaves and wives. But the, sub, the subversion goes even deeper. Here's the third way that Peter subverts it. I want you to look at your text. Look at verse 1. See how it starts with likewise? If you're a circler or an underliner, underline that. And then look at verse 7. It says, likewise, wives, in verse 1, and then verse 7, likewise, husbands. Now, likewise, in English grammar, it indicates a continuation of an argument, right? Likewise, in the same way. And so it's a reference back. And when you look at what it's a reference to, it actually goes back to chapter 2, verse 18, where it says, subjects, it says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. And then Peter moves on from pastor-servant relationship to wives. He says, likewise. In other words, with all respect, submit to your husbands. And then in verse 7, he moves to husbands. He says, likewise, with all respect, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. In other words, what Peter does is he actually makes the servant the paradigm and paragon of moral behavior. He says, husbands, wives, Look at that servant. You need to imitate him or her. Which is bonkers for the Greco-Roman world. The Greco-Roman world would never take a servant as the exemplary behavior. They're, 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 they're below you. But Peter says to both wives and husbands, you take the example of that servant with all respect. Likewise. You hear what I'm saying? It's, 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 he's calling both husbands and wives to a service, to a submission to each other. So that's what Peter subverts. He subverts marriage in all sorts of ways. We've, we've seen what he's against. But what is he for in marriage? So how does he convert marriage? Well, he calls us to a new paradigm of marriage, a new peace in marriage, a new power dynamic in marriage. So let's look at paradigm, peace, and power. So first, Peter calls for a conversion to a, a new paradigm for marriage. What are the what are the paradigms we have for marriage? Like another another way of asking is why why do we get married? Right? Why do we get married? Uh, any Jane Austen fans out there? Jane Austen is kind of the, the, the romance conquers property, possession, inheritance, right? She's, she has this gospel of romance, and she's, she's uh, trying to, to shine a light in the early 19th century. And I think now, most of us would say people get married for love, right? It's romance. Um, romance has swept the field. Netflix, Prime, Hulu are well-stocked with rom-coms of every different stripe. We are just around the corner from one of the most terrible, terrible movie seasons 
called Christmas, right? Right. Every Hallmark Christmas movie, you know how they're going to end. And if you really love romance, and you want to drag out like an hour and a half into 30 hours, you know, Korean dramas, right? The Korean dramas. You know how it's going to end. You do. They're going to end up together. I promise. Um, like, there's this gospel of romance. We love it. We love it. Ernest Becker, a cultural anthropologist back in the 60s, actually, he, uh, he, he penned a term for this intense love of love, this intense faith in romance. He calls it apocalyptic romance, which is fantastic. I love that. Apocalyptic romance. Romance provides transcendence. Right? The stars align on the lover's first glance. You can hear it in Jason Isbell's. Right? If we were vampires. The desire for an immortal love. The rom-com ends with a kiss, the wedding. But it has little to say, little vision for like after that, right? What happens next? What happens when they wake up, in the, you know, in the honeymoon? Like, you smell. Like, what do I do with that? So it's not particularly surprising that even as apocalyptic romance has, has taken the field, we have all this faith in romance, at the same time, the divorce rate has gone up, right? We are simultaneously more allured by marriage, putting more on it, as well as disillusioned with the institution. It's a deep irony. If marriage is really just about the sparks, sparks are dangerous, and they start fires. The key, though, to Peter's paradigm for marriage is in verse 1. Right, he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Why? So that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. The paradigm is what he's saying. He's saying, wives, I want you to love your husbands and submit to them to be such a good wife that it actually shows the beauty and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they might see you and say, that is beautiful. I want what you have. The point of marriage is actually to be a picture, to be a portrait, to be a living symbol of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. That's a different paradigm. And remember, this is the whole theme of, Peter, of, of this section of Peter. He started out in chapter 2 saying, hey, live such good lives among the pagans, such beautiful lives, that when they see you, even if they don't like you, they see your good works and they glorify God. He's calling us to live missionally, to live beautifully. And he's saying marriage is a part of that. Marriage is a part of that. This new paradigm has a radically different standard and sight of what is good. Notice the stark contrast in verses 3 and 4. He says, do not let your adorning. That word adorning is actually the Greek word uh, cosmos. It's where we get our word cosmetics. Okay, let your cosmetics not be eternal, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning, your cosmetics, your beauty, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now here's, here's, here's the line. Which in God's sight is very precious. Right, the human eye sees one thing about marriage. Right? We assume, we presume. And Peter says, no, 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 no. It's not what you see, it's what God sees. These are the standards of what marriage is. This is the paradigm. It's not our paradigm, it's God's paradigm that matters. 
And this should be a, a warning to us, right? In our media-saturated world, we are bombarded with the wrong standards of beauty, the wrong standards of marriage. And that gets to us. That gets to us. Your sense of God's sight goes bad, and you end up bought into deceptive paradigms of beauty and marriage. Proverbs 31. It's actually, uh, I think it's a penultimate verse, right? Proverbs ends with this warning. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Hey, beauty is good, but it's dangerous. It can deceive you. But what matters is the heart, what the Lord sees. So, but, but I don't want you to forget this, this larger paradigm of marriage. Remember, Peter said, look to the servant, husbands and, and wives. This is the paradigm of marriage. It's actually one of service and submission. And that applies to both husbands and wives. And a bit of gender bending, right? Peter lays out the example of Christ right before this in chapter 2. He says, this is what Christ did. And then he goes right into wives and says, wives submit just like Christ did. Hey women, take a man's example. The Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. He is the paradigm. And this is an alien paradigm to the reigning paradigm of romance and marriage, right? Modern people get married for self-fulfillment or self-realization. Like, I want a wife or I want a husband. I want this life. I've got this dream that this is going to be my life. Marriage is about me, my needs. Jerry Maguire, right? You complete me. There's a beauty to that, but there's also a dark side, right? If you complete me, this marriage is about me, right? I need you to serve me. You hear that orientation? It's, if, if this ceases, if this marriage ceases to serve my needs, then marriage is, is discardable. I think that's why we don't like submission in our culture, right? I'm talking to men and women here. Because we are, we've all imbibed a narcissistic view of marriage and life. My marriage is about me getting what I need and what I want. And then, and, and then, yeah, if you're calling me to submit that, yeah, I don't want to do that. But what Peter is saying is marriage is not about you. The marriage is fundamentally about the kingdom of God. And then in that, submission and servanthood become transformed. This is not about us getting what, I, what we want. This is about something larger than ourselves. It actually frees us from the enslavement we often are under in marriage. It is not about you. Marriage will not fulfill you or complete you. Indeed, marriage cannot hold the weight of apocalyptic romance. Rather, marriage is about you learning to be a servant over a lifetime, just like the Lord Jesus. The irony is that the more you die to apocalyptic romance, to narcissistic romance, and take up the dish towel of a servant, the better your marriage will be. That's God's paradigm for marriage, and it is precious in His sight. So that's the paradigm. Let's look now at the peace. The Christian conversion of marriage includes a new peace at its heart. It's striking. Peter Wright is writing to a group of vulnerable women, perhaps anxious with many concerns. Will their faith alienate their husbands? Will they suffer at their husbands' displeasure? Perhaps they're anxious for their spouse's salvation. But in the midst of all these concerns, he recommends them to have a gentle and quiet spirit at their heart. 
in verse 4. Now, the Greek word quiet here is actually more of a peaceful connotation. One definition says it's a, it's a settled spirit due to divinely inspired calmness. The Amplified Bible rightfully translate it, translates this as a gentle and peaceful spirit, one that is calm and self-controlled, not over-anxious, but serene and spiritually mature. Now, both these words, peaceful, gentle, in the scripture, men are called to that too. This is not just for women, this is for everyone. This is the heart of marriage. This is the peace that you need in marriage. Jesus describes his heart in similar terms. In Matthew eleven twenty nine. he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You hear that? Gentle and quiet. Peter calls us to take up the heart of our Savior in marriage, which is a heart that is gentle and peaceful. How? How do you have that? Marriage can be ravaging. Right? How does Peter expect us to have a gentle and calm spirit? Well, first of all, both of these things are fruits of the spirit. Right? These are not naturally produced. There's a, this is a supernatural, gentle, and sated heart. So how do we get that? Well, Peter tells us in the next verse, verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. This peaceful heart comes from a hope in God. A hope in God. In fact, the more your heart hopes in God, the more peaceful and gentle your heart becomes in marriage. Let me explain how this works. So marriage is the most important and intimate human relationships. And that is, and thus it is so easy for us, both singles and married, to make our marriages, or lack thereof, to be central to our identity. You will think about your spouse more than any other person, and that's good and right. But there's a danger that we either idolize them, or we want them to idolize ourselves, or some mix of that. We want them to please us, to give us what we need, or to fulfill our vision of life. Or, perhaps we want to please them. If I could just please her, then I'd be happy. I hear a lot of husbands like that. Right? If the wife isn't happy, then no, ain't, ain't no one happy. To put this in theological terms, we are looking to our marriage to make us righteous and right. Right? to make us whole and healthy, to justify us. Marriage or our spouse has become our hope. And the fruit of that is not peace, but insecurity. But if our hope is in God, if our righteousness is in Jesus and not my marriage or my experience of marriage, if I know that marriage will not save us, save me, then I can actually have a peaceful heart. Peter says that this peace is imperishable. It does not fade, even when, not if, our spouse hurts us. Here's the reality. You're going to hurt your spouse, and they're going to hurt you. In dismal ways. You might say, how can I submit and serve my spouse, have peace in my heart, if my spouse is untrustworthy? Now, Peter commends Sarah to us, which is ironic. Because Abraham and Sarah's marriage is a dismal mess. It is a mess. What's prominent in the story is not Sarah's submission, but Abraham's submission. 
Abraham submits to Sarah's urge, urging him to sleep with another woman. And he goes along with it. She pimps her husband out to her servant. But Sarah does not have the monopoly on bad choices. Not once, but twice, Abraham gives his wife as a trophy wife to a man of power to save himself. And Sarah submits. Both times, though, the Lord supernaturally intervenes to protect her from being touched. The Lord protects Sarah in the midst of this, sending plagues and dreams on the king. So what's the point here? What's the point? First of all, the patriarchs' family lives are just, they're terrible. It's, that's how not to live. Don't read Genesis in a way that you're trying to imitate your life. Okay? But that even when our spouse hurts us, right? Abraham sets his wife up. He betrays her for his own good, his own safety. But Peter says, listen, Sarah trusted God because God would protect her, even when her husband did not. And the same is true of us. And second of all, <laughs> I actually think that Peter shows us the truth of justification, right? Despite Abraham and Sarah's very real sins and terrible marriage, the gospel of Jesus Christ has transformed the memory of this marriage so that only the good and beautiful survives. Wouldn't that be beautiful of us? So, that is the peace of marriage. We can have peace even when our spouse is untrustworthy. Now, let's finally, uh, we're going to look at the new power dynamic. The Christian conversion of marriage has a new power dynamic. Verse 7, Husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. There's a little book uh, by Austrian social critic Yvonne Illich called Gender. But if you're interested in this, I, it's, a, it's a brilliant book. Uh, it's really poorly written, but it's brilliant. Um, but he explains how industrialism and modern technology have rendered gender, or what we, uh, sexuality, to be a, an ir- irrelevant reality to us, right? But in the ancient world, men and women did not and could not do the, the same jobs physiologically. They didn't. Especially in the Greco-Roman world, the strength of men was on clear display everywhere. Men did physically demanding labor of building houses, cities, roads. Women didn't do that. Men husbanded animals, agricultural production. They did the fishing. They did the policing and the soldiering. And women did not. So human strength was, like, like masculine strength was everywhere in view. Weaker vessels, then, as Peter refers, are almost certainly referred to the relative physical weakness of women, which undeniably contributed to a general weakness in cultural and political power. But before you get offended, though, maybe you're not offended. I'm physically weak. I'm a weaker vessel. Weakness was not to be exploited or shameful as it was typical of the Romans. Because in the scriptures, the way that God treats weakness is actually with special care and protection. Honor. He says to the husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way or a considerate way. Showing honor to to them. There's a Nietzschean impulse in our society to despise weakness. But that is not the Lord's way. Rather, he everywhere calls his people to honor weakness. 
In Paul's teaching on the body of Christ, he says, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. It's an upside-down power dynamic that Peter is laying out for for us here. We honor the weak. Christ was weak. He was crucified in weakness. And to be weak, to admit weakness, is to be like Christ. And there's no greater honor for weakness than to be like Christ. So where are we? If we're going to like tally up the, the algebra here. We have husbands, wives. Like who who stands where? Like where, where, what's the what's the calculus here? Who wins? Who's on top? I don't know if you notice this, but we live in a moment that's fixated on power, right? Fixated on power, and it's slipped into the church. Church historian Carl Truman notes that discussions on gender, especially in conservative Christian circles, sound like those in the academy. Like Derrida and Foucault, obsessed with power. And I would argue that the Christian left is just as obsessed with power. And all these accounts have far too simple an account of power that fall dismally short both of reality and the biblical account. Let me summarize Peter's power dynamics up to this point. He says, wives are to be shuttered to husbands, yes. And it's couched as an evangelistic strategy. But how much more should they submit to their husbands who are themselves submitted to Christ? But husbands are to honor their wives who are weaker. So we have honor and we have submission. But remember, the servant who submits to his master, with all respect, is the model for both husband and wife. And Peter has earlier called all Christians to submission. And then Peter ends the passage with another flattening impulse. Look at verse 7, the end of it. He says, show honor to women, since they are heirs with you the grace of life. He's saying at the foot of the cross, spouses are equals. Both husband and wife suffer from sin and self. They both need salvation. They both need grace. The unmerited favor of God. So to summarize the power dynamics of the new creation, it's complicated. The New Testament everywhere recognizes the reality and the good of authority. Authority is good. Authority, power, leadership. And they're even inevitable, I think the scripture teaches. If you ever read Animal Farm, it's inevitable. Authority is. Elders bear authority over church members. Husbands bear authority over wives. Parents have authority over children. Submission to authority is an expression of obedient love for Jesus. And yet, the whole hierarchical structure is permeated by the leveling of the gospel of grace. The gospel does not abolish authority, but converts it. The power dynamic becomes one of service and grace. Do you hear that? Grace. Indeed, grace is the real power dynamic at the heart of Christian marriage. Grace is the key to salvation and marriage. It's a merited favor. That's what grace is, right? Marriage at its worst is a kind of tit-for-tat, transactional account that inevitably ends in bitterness. But grace is the power that obliterates the tally-keeping. Grace destroys entitlement because you do not deserve your spouse's love. None of us do. It is by grace that you are saved and by grace you are married. And when you recognize the grace that you receive from God and the salvation is given you in Jesus, you actually grow in love. 
Not only for your spouse, but for everyone. In Luke 7, Jesus tells us that whoever is forgiven little loves little. And the inverse is true. If you've been forgiven much, you love much. So here's a bold statement. If your marriage is lacking love, the fundamental problem is not a communication or personality issue, but a failure to believe and grasp the gospel of grace. Do you know the grace that God has given you? Are you responding out of that? Now, verse 7 warns us, Peter warns us, that our dishonor of our spouse hinders our prayers. Let that sink in. Your relationship with your spouse is directly tied to your relationship to God. There is something special about marriage. If you mistreat or dishonor your spouse, Peter says, your prayers are hindered, impeded, blocked off. That's especially true of abuse. But what is this something special in marriage? Why is it why is it special? Because it's wrapped up in our salvation. Because marriage is the metaphor for our salvation. This is the truth in apocalyptic romance. Our culture knows somehow that love is to save them, but they've misplaced, they've misidentified what that love is. The truth of apocalyptic romance is that there is a love that will save you, but it is the Lord Jesus, not another human person. Marriage is one of the most profound pictures of God's unconditional, faithful, self-sacrificing love for his people. And marriage symbolizes the Lord Jesus' marriage to us. So how can we summarize this passage? Don't you see that every one of these commands, both the husbands and wives, are actually about how Jesus treats us? This is your spouse. If you are in the Lord Jesus, this is your spouse. He treats us all with respect, like that of a servant. He does not coerce us, but he wins us over with his beautiful and pure conduct. His beauty is not external, but proved by his sacrificial love for us. His heart towards us is gentle and quiet, peaceful. He's a better husband than Abraham. He does not sell us out for his own protection. Rather, he suffers for our foolishness. We hurt and harm him, and yet he keeps moving towards us, opening his heart and his life to us. He is the husband who honors completely. He does not exploit or despise our weakness, but he knows us. He covers over our weakness and protects us. Do you see your true spouse? This is the Lord Jesus and how he relates to you if you're in him. It is His grace that will empower you to live in your marriage or in your singleness. I want to end with some brief application and then conclude with the story. First application. Husbands, pursue your wives. There could be, there could be, I'm sure, abuse in this room. I'm sure of it by the statistics. But yet, do you know how many more complaints there are of women about their husbands who do not lead spiritually, of passivity, so much more. So husbands, lead your wives. The word it says here, it says, it says live with your wives in an understanding way. It literally means according to knowledge. Know your wives, pursue her. Another translation says be considerate of her. Think of her. 
If you're anything like me, you have a lot of limitations. I actually think I'm the weaker sex when it comes to intellectually. But thinking ahead, considering your wife, planning a date night. Don't don't let her do that. You do that. And by the way, I I, I actually debated on whether to say have a date night. It's not a bad idea. It presumes a certain socioeconomic status, and I don't like that. You can actually pursue each other and know each other without spending money. I promise. I promise you can do that. Um, the, the point is, though, to know her, to pursue her, to consider her. And, and, and it's actually ambiguous here, so your prayers may not be hindered. It's ambiguous whether he's saying, husbands, you're, you're independent prayer life, or actually your husband-wife prayer life. One of the ways that we grow in marriage is we pray together. We pray together. If you're not praying together in your marriage, then you're not going to grow. I know it's weird. It's really weird. For some weird reason, praying with your spouse is one of the strangest things you could do. But it is good and beautiful, and it's a way that you grow together. Pursue each other. And why does this have to do with you too? There are many of us. It's so easy in our culture to begin to idolize our kids, Right? Our kids at the expense of our marriage. The Bible says there's a priority. Your kids need to see you putting them to bed so that you guys can have time to connect. That is good for your kids to know that they are in second place to your marriage. It's good. All right, now an illustration to end. What Peter is saying is I want your marriage to be a beautiful, beautiful vision of the gospel. What could this look like? In 1990, Robertson McQuilkin was at the top of his career. The president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary had a worldwide ministry. He had doubled enrollment, founded radio stations, authored books, traveled the world preaching. But he gave it all up in 1990 to minister to his wife, Muriel, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Trusted longtime friends said, don't resign. They encouraged him to put his wife in an institution, right? Give her good care. And then you can keep your ministry going. How many sermons would he not preach because he was helping his wife brush her teeth? He was failing his God-given potential, becoming a full-time servant to his wife. But he resigned. And his resignation speech went as viral as you could in the 1990s. He explained, quote, Muriel seems to be almost happy when with me and almost never happy when not with me. It's not only that I promise in sickness and in health till death do us part, and I'm a man of my word, but as I've said, it is the only fair thing. She sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very deeply. She is a delight. And it is a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. This love story between Robertson and his wife, it went viral. It became a national story. Why? Because it was good and true and beautiful. And that act of submission to his wife, to his vows to his wife, Robert said, it looked looked like he was enslaving himself, like he's never going to reach his potential. And yet, friends, in that act of sacrifice, he gained freedom from the metrics of success. 
In his service to his wife, he was freed from his enslavement to himself, and he actually became more like Jesus. And that's what it means. That's what it means to be a Christian and to be married. That is marriage at its best. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray for the marriages in this room. Oh Lord, we need your help. Thank you that we are heirs of the grace of life. We need your grace poured out into our marriages, Lord. And would you be with those single people, Father? Thank you that you are their spouse. Lord, would you care for them in such a profound and intimate way. And Father, would you make us a church, oh Lord, that is your bride, beautiful, in quiet heart. We pray this in Christ's name.